Lord, we come before you and we ask you to bless this time as we open the word and we look at to see what you'd have us to learn from this chapter in Ezekiel. We ask that you guide us and and just guide us in all that we do in our life and, and how who we should speak to and how we should speak. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 7, starting at verse 16. But they that escape of them shall escape and shall be on the mountains like doves of the, of the valleys, all of them that mourning, every one of, in his iniquity. All hands shall be feeble and all knees shall be weak as water. They shall also gird themselves with sackcloth and horror shall come cover them and shame shall be upon their faces and baldness upon their heads. They shall cast down their silver in the street, and their gold shall be removed. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them. In the, in the day of the wrath of the Lord, they shall not satisfy their souls, neither fill their bowels, because it is the stumbling block of their iniquity. As for the beauty of his ornament, he set it in majesty, but they made the image of their abominations and their detestable things therein. Therefore, I have set it far from them. And I will give it unto the hands of strangers for a prey, and, and the wicked of the earth for spoil. And they shall pollute it. My face will I turn from them, and they shall pollute my secret place, for the robbers shall enter into it and defile it. So we're looking at this. He's continuing on the judgment of Israel. And we've already said this very much sounds like the end days. Uh, it could be the Babylonian captivity, except they're in Babylon, and it could be the, the Roman Roman destruction, but it sounds very much like the end of days. But it's, And we've been talking about how they were going to die in battles and in wars and everything, but some would escape. And so verse 16 continues, and they that escape shall, shall escape and seek refuge. They shall be on the mountains like the doves of the valleys, all of them mourning, everyone in his iniquity. And he talks about this, the ones that are going to escape this destruction are going to be mourning. And we've seen this over time with Israel. When they went into Babylonian captivity, they mourned over all the stuff that they lost. When they went into the captivity with the, Syria, uh, with the Assyrian for the Israelites, they mourned. When, they, when Rome took them over, <laughs> the Israelites mourned for for the loss of their city because they have a great affinity toward the city of Jerusalem and that whole area, but specifically Jerusalem. And it is something that even to this day, the Jews have a great desire for that city to be their capital. Right now it's Tel Aviv, but, every, but they're really pushing for Jerusalem to be their capital. And if you know anything about Jerusalem in this day and age, it's split up into three, part, uh, three parts, the Christian, the 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 uh, Muslim and the, the Jews. It's actually the one place in this world where all the religions live together fairly peacefully overall. And it's one of the things that uh, bothers the world that is if the Jews lose control of Jerusalem that it's going to become basically a battleground uh, because they know the one that would take it would be the Muslims who would then try to outline, outlaw all other religions from practicing in Jerusalem. But Israel has a very democratic environment and a, and a strong uh, moral basis to run their government. And they, and they allow other religions to practice. It's not recognized as official religions and everything. But you can be a Muslim in Israel and be okay. Now, if you were trying to be a Jew or a Christian in many Muslim countries, you would be 
killed or at the very least not allowed to do any business or make any money, but the Jews allow pretty much any, very much like the United States, you, you can practice whatever religion you want and not be pushed around at the present time. <laughs> but it says that these, they escaped and they went into mourning. They had lost so much. And we have, don't really understand what this is going to be like, but they went into mourning. They'd lost their city. They'd lost their country. And we could picture this. What if we lost America? How would we feel? Uh, verse 17, all hands shall be feeble and all knees shall be weak as water. And that means sinking down. They're, they're not going to be able to stand. And this is what God says. Those who escape are going to be weakened to the point where they're going to find it hard to stand up for anything. And we see that again in our country. We're seeing all this happen. It's, this is something that happens when people get away from God. They are weakened and, and made feeble. And the further we get from God, the more weak and the more evil things get. And we've shared this, you know, when Christianity came around and was lifted up, much of the world changed because it, the Jews had the same rules and they did okay, but they never took it outside of their, their walls. They, they, they were, were God's chosen people, us and nobody else. Christians took it to the world and we saw the world for a period of time pretty much change. There was caring for the weak. There was caring for the poor. There was caring for the, for the orphans and widows. And, and I don't know how much of your history you know, but before Christianity started, especially before Jesus was born, if you were a widow, forget it. You were, you were a second-class citizen unless you were one of your kids would take you in or you had parents to go back to. If you were an orphan without parents, you were a nobody. You, were, you would beg in the street and hope that you might sometime get some, some uh, advantage. If you got sick, unless you had lots of money to hire a private doctor, you were without hope. If you were a, a warrior who got hurt, you didn't want to get hurt. You either wanted to die or not be hurt because if you were severely hurt, number one, the medical facilities weren't there and nobody cared for you because of the, the whole part of the world was if you're not strong enough to survive, you don't deserve to survive. Now, this was before the idea of Darwin and survival of the fittest, but this was what the mentality. And Christianity came along and said, we're going to love people. We're going we're to minister to those that are weak. And as we see the world shifting back, as we're pulling away from God, we're watching the world shift back to this mentality of, if you're not strong enough to survive, you don't deserve to survive. We're seeing it through abortion, the, the push for euthanasia, the push for uh, assisted, physician-assisted suicide. If you just think you're worthless and you deserve to die, you should die. And we're seeing a culture of death returning back in as we're pulling away from God. And it's shocking people in our day and age because they don't know history. All we're doing is returning back to the pre-Christian days because we are becoming post-Christian. We're going beyond Christ and beyond what the Bible teaches. But what we're doing by going beyond is returning to the past. And it takes us back to Ecclesiastes, nothing new under the sun. Okay, There's nothing new that happens as we, as we start drifting back into the, the culture of death. It's what used to be. And... Because the further we get from God, the weaker we get. The weaker we can't stand up for morals. We don't have morals to stand up for. One of the greatest arguments against the atheist is 
that you cannot have right and wrong as an atheist because you have nothing to pin it on. If, if your right and wrong depends totally on the individual, then it's whatever that individual thinks. And if somebody thinks it's okay and another thinks it's bad, who's right? Neither of them, if you don't have God. This is what he's saying. You're so weak, you're gonna, you're, you're can't stand. There's nothing to stand on. It's like trying to stand on quicksand because there's nothing there as a foundation. And we're seeing our world get into this quagmire of, of relative uh, absolutes. You know, there's, it's only good if you think it's good and it's bad if you think it's bad. And if, you know, don't try to tell me that what you think should be imposed on me. And then, then they have the audacity to say that somebody did something bad. How do they say that it was bad? Because God gave them a conscience that said it was bad. And they try to use that, and another person, well, I've, I've seared mine, I don't think it's bad. And this is where we get into this thing, you have to have the foundation. And this is why we as Christians need so much to get into God's word, we need to be with God's people, we need to be taught, because we need the foundation that is firm. Because otherwise, it's just a matter of comparing what I believe against what you believe, and who's stronger to make, make, your, make your beliefs work. And this is a very rough place to be, and we're seeing our world return to that mentality and had to, according to scriptures, it's going to be like the days of Noah where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It is a very true statement, though. History repeats itself. The secular world knows it. The Christian world knows it because Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. The Bible tells us there's nothing new under the sun. We read through the Bible and we see history repeat itself over and over and over and over again. And then we act like it's not going to repeat itself. And the Bible tells us in Revelation that it will. That it's going to get evil to the point where God's going to judge. We need to keep in mind as Christians to stay focused on God. To get into his word, to stay focused on him. Because even when he becomes unpopular with the world, his truth is still true. Because truth is always true. And this is something the world is trying very hard to... to disprove and to try to say it isn't the truth does not matter and truth is not true but truth always is true it will always win out in the long run and sometimes it'll take a long time for it to come out but it always comes to be true and we want to look at this it says verse 18 they shall also gird themselves with sackcloth and horror shall cover them shame shall be upon their faces and baldness upon their heads so they, we look at this and he says they will gird themselves in sackcloth. And this is to in, illustrate mourning. But again, what happens with this group of people is everything they're doing is just ritual. They want to show that they're mourning, so they put on sackcloth, but they're not really. And horror shall cover them and shame shall be on their faces. So they're going to try to appear to be repentant because of their mourning. And this, the picture I get here is more like the kid who's caught doing wrong and all of a sudden is sorry. They're not sorry because of what they did. They're sorry that they got caught. And we see a lot of that with the criminal system where people aren't sorry that they did something wrong. They're sorry that they got caught. There's one guy at the prison. He keeps telling everybody that he's not in prison for doing, uh, dealing drugs. He's in prison because his friend turned him in. He's not, it wasn't that he violated the law, it's that his friend turned him in. 
you know, which goes to show the mentality, and he's not the only one that thinks that way. He's the only one I've heard say that, but I know he's not the only one that thinks that way. I wasn't doing anything wrong, really. I just got <laughs> caught by the police. Now, will it get that way? Is it getting worse? Probably, because we're headed toward the end days where everything, people are going to do what's bad, you know, right in their own eyes. But I've got a lot of friends who are in the police force, and they tell me about how hard it is to become a police officer. Polygraph tests, psychological tests, the tests that you do uh, out of the prison. These guys go through three-week training course plus the evaluations, and most of them are good, solid guys. Do a few make it through that are, that are idiots and jerks? Yes. But the majority of them are good. Police go through even more training than the correctional officers. Most of them are good. Now, you figure in L.A., you've got, you know, what, how many, how many thousands of men in the police force? Okay, if even 1% of, like, 5,000 men are, are dirty, that's 50 men that are dirty, which can make the rest of the police force look bad really quick. Excessive force is a whole nother, whole nother ball game because one person's excessive force is not another person's excessive force. The bad guy who's doing bad things is going to think that you putting your, putting your handcuffs on him is excessive force. Verse 11, they shall cast their silver into the streets and their gold shall be removed. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They shall not satisfy their souls, neither fill their bowels because it is a stumbling block of the, because it is the stumbling block of their iniquity. Basically, God's saying that when he moves, you're not buying your way out. <laughs> you're not able to buy your way out. You're not going to bribe God into forgiving you. Which is kind of an interesting thing. In the Middle Ages, the, the, the Catholic Church started selling indulgences, saying if you were wealthy enough, you could buy your forgiveness for your sins. You can go out and sin as much as you want and then pay for your forgiveness. And God's saying, no, that is not a possible activity. When God brings judgment, you're going to be judged. And this is something that is so important for us to understand. No matter how much we have, when it's time to face God, it doesn't mean anything to God. Because no man has enough to bribe God anyway. The God who can make everything, who, who, and I love this statement, you know, he builds the roads of heaven out of gold, which we think is so precious, and he uses it for, for paving stones, you know, and it's like uh, people think they're going to be able to buy God. You know, I can buy God if I get rich enough. And God's saying, no, nothing you do, you're not going to be able to buy your way out. It's going to be worthless. It's going to just be cast into the street. And we think about this, if we, if, when Solomon was king over Israel, it said that he had so much silver and gold that silver was as, as dust. Silver had no value whatsoever in Solomon's kingdom. You know, that's something we think of as fairly valuable. If you have silver, you can usually get, what you, you know, get some of what you want. But he also had so much gold that gold did not have great value. But we have the, he says, you're not going to be able to buy it, and you're not going to be able to fill your tum stomach, basically, satisfy your bowels. <laughs> you're not going to be able to f get enough food. You're not going to, you're going to starve. And it says, because it is the, the stumbling block of their iniquity. Sin has consequences. Even for us as Christians, sin has consequences. It's going to make us fall. It'll make us unsatisfied with God. It will give us... Uh, There'll be discipline. And most of this is not God standing out there in heaven with a baseball bat hitting us over the head because we've sinned. It's the law of sowing and reaping. We sin, we earn a reward of death. 
And so this is very important for us to understand. We sin, there is consequence. Not because God's a meanie standing up there and saying, you've got to have this consequence. As a matter of fact, he's looking at times when he can take the consequences away from us. But usually he will let sin's consequences come over us because it is sin. And the law of sowing and reaping. You sow bad, you're going to receive bad, bad in return. And we need to be careful about this. When we sin... And this is why most of the time when we sin, we go, in our minds, if we really are doing any thinking about it, we're going, well, this, 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 and this might happen, but I'm willing, and we think we're willing to pay the price of the sin that we, as we have calculated the cost. The only problem is sin usually comes at a higher cost than we calculate. You know, somebody will go, well, I'm willing to pay, pay the bad reputation for, for committing adultery and, you know, maybe getting caught and then they don't count the cost of the possible pregnancies and the sexually transmitted diseases and, and all these other things that can come along. They, 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 they think of the immediate cost and say, I'm willing to pay this immediate cost. But they don't think of all the cost because we can't think of all the cost. Because if we thought of all the cost, we would never commit a sin. Because we would go, it's not worth, the ultimate costs are not worth it if we think about all of them. And every one of us have been there where we've sinned and, come, and something's come, come about because of it that we didn't think would happen. You know, and if we'd have known that that one item was going to happen, we probably would have had that second, third, fourth thought that says, no, I don't think it was worth it. I think the more we are in God's word, the more we're spending time with God, the more we're thinking like him, the more we are going to start to think a little bit before we sin. At least that's been my experience. The more, I, more in tune I am with God, the more in tune I am with his word, Sometimes I've had to choose to sin. Do I still fall into sins? Of course. I mean, we're all sinners. We're going to fall, quote unquote, fall into sin. And I've heard lots of pastors say there's no such thing as falling into sin. And I'm becoming more of that understanding myself of what they, we make decisions that lead to us falling into sin. Okay. Plan the steps that led to the really bad one that, that I had no plan for. And if I hadn't done those other previous ones, I probably wouldn't have fallen into the, the one that I fell into. Set the stage on purpose at some point and worked your way into it. So I understand when pastors say you don't fall into sin, and I kind of understand that. Because we make little compromises in our walk that usually lead to the sin that we get fall into. And those little compromises are the ones that we think we know the consequences of and that we're willing to pay. Well, I think I could just make this little lie and nobody, it, it's not going to really hurt somebody and then it leads you to another lie and another lie and next thing you know, your whole world is shattered. Uh, I can just view these, these pictures of these you know, naked people because it's not that big a deal and then you wonder why everybody you look at is with the wrong, wrong thoughts crashing through your head and eventually you end up acting upon what you've been filling your mind with. We want to be very careful because there are always consequences to everything we do, especially the little ones that we think are no big deal. You know, this is no big deal. I can, I can do this. I can handle the consequences of this little sin. The only problem is the little sins tend to snowball. And just like avalanches, it doesn't take much to get the, the snow really moving and, and beyond control of anything. Uh, a sound, a, a little tiny rock, a, the step. Uh, I walked across sand dune one time and actually slid down the sand dune because the, the sand just fell out 
fell out behind below me and the same thing as an avalanche you know it was like once that started going i wasn't stopping i had to i went down with the whole sand and granted it was only sand and it wasn't that big a deal but but this is what happens to us we walk on this treacherous territory and the next thing you know major problems are happening to us and when, and then at that point we're going well look at all you know, i just fell into this i don't know how i got here well let's look at your steps that got you there the little ones you thought you could handle you thought you knew the consequences of and you didn't see the big consequence down the road and this is what god is saying your sin was your stumbling block and now you, you now you're not even filling your stomach you're not able to even buy your way out of the judgment verse 20 and as for the beauty of his ornament whose ornament god's ornament which was israel he said it in majesty but they made their images an abomination and their detestable things thereof Therefore, I have set it far from them. God took Israel from nothing and said, I am going to make you my people. My people. I'm going to put my name in your place. I'm going to create a temple. I'm going to create a place for you to worship me. I'm going to give you my rules. He made them a beautiful ornament to shine out to the world. And they rejected him and set up their gods, and God says, I'm taking it far from you. The church is God's great ornament now as well. We're the bride of Christ. We're the perfect individuals. And yet, we look at what's going on in the church in our day. Not the true church necessarily, but what people call the church. Because Christians are still trying to be this ornament of God. Israel was his ornament. Israel and, and Jerusalem and the, and the walk that they were supposed to have, and they brought idolatry in. That goes, that, goes back, that goes back to an Exodus point of view where they took the gold and stuff and made idols. But this is, this is, ex, this is Ezekiel talking about future. So, and it says the beauty of his ornament. And ornament is trappings, and God made Israel... A very beautiful thing if the new king james had done what it said it did and just take out the old language i'd have no problem with it but there are some real serious verse changes that they made that really changed the meaning of the verse and the, a lot of what's going on and this is something serious about and i'm going to go off on a tangent here but i think it's worth going over king james bible was used for years is it a perfect bible absolutely not it is not a perfect bible it is very accurate as far as it goes it has a couple of issues in it, specifically like the Ten Commandments when it says thou shalt not kill and the word in Hebrew is murder. And there's a difference between murder and kill. There's a few minor problems with it, but not anything really big. Many of the newer versions are really watering down the message of God and the message of grace and the message of the blood. And this is something we have to be very careful of when we start getting into some of the newer. And I understand reading the new, new translations. Don't get me wrong. I, I, as I said, for about 10 years, I used an NIV Bible. I liked the NIV. Where the NIV is good, it is very good. The only problem with the NIV is where it's bad, it is very bad. And if you're trying to take your doctrine from a book where you're not sure whether it's good or bad, you've got a problem. This is true of almost all the newer versions. Most of them have done a good job in many places. Sometimes great jobs in some places. They do a better job than the King James does in translating certain spots. But the problem with them is where they're bad. You know, the idea of kill and murder in the, in the King James is really not, I mean, it's, a, it's an issue. 
but it's still both talking about death. Uh, it's kind of a minor, but having said that, the, the liberals use the thou shalt not kill against us. Well, you can't kill animals. You can't have capital punishment. You can't do this. You can't do that because the Bible says thou shalt not kill. Well, the Bible says thou shalt not commit murder. And that really means us as people, not even the government, because the government has a different instruction. They are to protect, and that means taking life if necessary. We have to take the whole Bible in, into context, and this is why I really encourage people, learn to use the Strong's Concordance and the words in the back of it with the Hebrew and the Greek, and learn to use the Greek lexicons and Hebrew lexicons. Find out what the words really mean and what, they, what they're about. Because if you can do that, then you can say with confidence, I don't care what Bible you use because you can be confident that what you're reading is correct. And if you follow me, even if you had a King James Bible and you follow me, there are times when I will change the word that I read in the King James Bible to what it should be, under my opinion, of having studied. Because it is that big a deal. When I read the Ten Commandments, you will not hear me say, thou shalt not kill. I will read what the newer versions say, you shall not murder because it is a more accurate, precise meaning on that word. So the important thing for us is all of us should probably learn Greek and Hebrew. Knowing that we're not going to do that, we need to learn how to use the tools to be able to understand Greek and Hebrew. And in today's world, the tools are so easy to come by and so easy to use. When I first started studying in Greek and Hebrew, I would have eight or nine books out in front of me popping between different books. Okay, here's my lexicon. Oh, it's, it's this verb, what tense is it? And I'd have to go someplace else to, to, to figure out what tense it was. I'd have to go back to the original writing and look at the ending and then compare it to the, to the grammar book and say, okay, this is, the, this is the tense and the mood it is. Well, today the computer programs do all that for you. So you don't need all the books to be able to have full study. And then you get in and you go, oh, okay. Now, having said that, it can be very dangerous to start studying at that level because you can get lost in the words and lose the context. And it's very important to always keep the context of what you're reading. And because the whole Bible is about Jesus. And the great thing is when you start realizing that the whole Bible is about Jesus, beginning to end, it's all about Jesus. And the more we realize that, we start taking everything else into context, and we go, oh, here's Jesus, here's Jesus, here's Jesus. And this is what I like to bring out when I teach the Old Testament. I want people to see Jesus in it. It's not a different, different God. It's not a different message. It is the same exact message as the New Testament. The New Testament's a little clearer because it's all about Jesus, and he had already come. Uh, but the Old Testament has all these pictures of Jesus, and Jesus appears on several occasions. And I say several, it's probably 30 or 40 or 50 occasions that Jesus shows up in the Old Testament physically. And we need to be able to see this. Oh, wow, here it is. And, not, not, and then we have the whole slew of pictures of Jesus. The whole life of Joseph is a great picture of Jesus. You know, and the way he was raised from nothing and became the, the savior of his people and provided food and, and substance for him. We have Abraham with his faithfulness as a picture of, of Jesus and his relationship with God. We, we see uh, the, we actually see Jesus in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see, uh, we see the promise in, in Genesis 3 that the savior would be coming that would redeem the world. We see Jesus everywhere 
in the Old Testament and all about God's love and his grace for people. Does he have judgment? Yes. Does he have judgment in the Old New Testament? Absolutely. There's plenty of judgment in the, in the New Testament as well. But they're keying in on the New Testament on his love and his mercy more than his, than his judgment. And the Old Testament is more of his love, his, his judgment in, than his mercy. But his mercy and his grace are all through the Old Testament as well. And we get in there and we look at it and we say, wow, look at all of this. And this is the amazing thing is people bring this out. Here's Jesus. Here's Jesus. We spent the, the weeks on the tabernacle showing Jesus, the picture of Jesus in the tabernacle that God told them to build. All through the tabernacles, great pictures of Jesus. Right down to the walls of the, of the uh, holy place and the holy of holies that, that show Jesus. And we see the, the furnishing that shows Jesus. We, we see the, the brass and the silver and the gold uh, that they built it out of that all shows Jesus. So we see all of this going on and we say, wow, here is God. The newer versions of the Bible are starting to pull back. They're trying to take away from the blood. They're trying to take away from judgment. They're trying to do a lot of things that are really not doing us any good. Now, this is why in many senses there's a lot of people who read multiple versions of the Bible. And then they kind of compare the versions and try to figure it out, which I'm not a big fan of either. Because if you're reading three newer versions that all are washing down the, the blood and then you get to the, the King James, it's going to make it, well, these three must be right and this one's wrong. Well, no, they're all, they're all on the same, same plan. And I don't know how to explain it. I don't know why it's happening. Satan is having an in, influx in the people who are doing these translations as well. And it's all built toward a one world religion that's going to be coming because then they can take the the watered down versions and see well you can you can put these little pieces together with other religions because it's not all about the blood it's not all about jesus sacrifice are they doing it on purpose no they're not doing it on purpose for the most part i don't think the niv has like i say they've got places where they had some really good scholars did some fantastic interpretation but they also had a number of liberal scholars who did some very poor interpretation of the of the word and i'm not trying to advocate use the king james in any straight stretch of the imagination i'm going i'm saying study know what it is that it's saying and why they're why they used what they did and try to find out what the right words should be and it could be as simple as going into your strong's concordance and looking up the number and going to the back of the strong's concordance and and looking up in their small concordance in the back uh, lexicon in the back what the meaning of the word is this is something we have to be careful of, especially now that there's so many different translations. It makes life very difficult. Sometimes when a pastor is preaching along and he's preaching out of the King James and somebody's reading in, the, in a New King James or a NIV and they're going, oh, he hasn't made a point at all. I just read that. Uh, the Message Bible is a paraphrase. Uh, and if you see the word paraphrase, they're not even translating. It's just a person writing it in plainer English and he's not even trying to say that it's scripture and I have said this over and over again that is a very true statement there are people who cannot read the King James they just don't they have the education level to read the King James because the King James is written for us at this day and age at about a 10th or 11th grade level and there are people who cannot read the King James so they need a simpler easier Bible to read when the Jesus movement was really kicking into gear Many of the people, the, the Bible translation that many of the Jesus movement people used, 
was the good news for modern man. But having said that, it had enough of the gospel in it that people could get saved. And most of the people quickly moved on. Once they got saved and they, they kind of got tired of this watered down stuff and they moved on. And what will end up happening is when people ask me what is the best version of the Bible, I have a very simple answer. The one you're going to read. Okay, you could have the best, absolutely best translated version of the Bible, but if you don't read it, it doesn't do you any good. And so this goes back to the ones that I said, they started reading Good News for Modern Man, a terrible version of the New Testament, but it had the gospel, most of the gospel, and they got saved. What ends up happening is the Holy Spirit will move you from these poor versions at some point and say, you need more, you need more in-depth, you need more accuracy, and then you'll be moved into... A different version and then from there if that's not a full enough one it'll move you into another version uh, most of the people from Calvary Chapel in the earlier days started with a good news for modern man <laughs> and very quickly moved on to other versions many of them now teach from King James as you listen to them on the radio but they're not opposed to using the message and all these other living new living translations which I have problems with because of how badly Trans, you know, paraphrase they are. But they make a point, though. They, they bring things down to a level that people can understand. And, and I, like I say, the most important thing is, are you going to read the book? It, if it takes an NIV for somebody to be able to read the Bible or, or the Messenger or the New Living Translation, and that's what they need to be able to read the Bible, fine. I have absolute trust that the Holy Spirit will teach them from a poor translation as well as he will from a good translation and will move them at the right time into a better translation of the Bible. And, and I've tried the different versions. I have over the years. I've tried them, and I always come back to the King James. I grew up on the King James as a young child. I understand it. It's not, not a problem to me. Uh, I understand the archaic words and have looked them up and... And I understand how to take the these and the thous, and, but I also understand what the these and the thous and the ths and all this stuff mean. Okay, because every one of those things have a, a big meaning. It tells you whether it's a subject, an indirect object, or a direct object. And it tells you who's speaking, whether it's an individual or not an individual. I mean, there's a reading the King James for somebody like me who understands what all those endings and everything means. It's a very powerful thing to read and study because I look at it and say, wow, here's, a, here's my direct object, here's my indirect object, here's, here's this, here's that, you know, and it's very easy for me to, to see. But if you don't know what it is, it's just a whole bunch of extra words that nobody, <laughs> that make no sense. But to somebody who knows how to read it, it, makes, it brings in all kinds of great information. But again, what's the best one? The one you're going to read. Uh, as you start developing and learning, you're going, okay, I can't, I can't use this one anymore. God, what should I get? And then he'll move you into a different version. Uh, big battle between, between people who study is whether you should use a King James Bible or an NASB Bible. Both of them are very good translated Bibles. I can't stand an NASB Bible because it is word for word and it's hard to read. Uh, where the Greek puts the verb in the beginning, it puts the verb in the beginning. So you'll read ran he to the house instead of he ran to the house you know and it's uh can you make sense out of it yes but it just it's not the way we think in english and so they they literally word for word for word for word 
they, they wrote, they translated that version. So it's a very, and it's very well translated. It's just hard to read. It's a great study Bible because it's translated word for word and, and well translated. Uh, but this is where it comes down to the one that you're going to read is most important. And I will never criticize anybody for what version of the Bible they're using because they're hopefully listening to the Holy Spirit and learning at where they're at. And, and as I said, for years when I was young, and in my 20s I believe it was, I used it for almost 10 years, I used an NIV Bible and it was nice. I liked what it said in most places. But I ran, I ran across enough things that weren't good that I finally just said, I can't, I can't use this one anymore. Uh, and then I went back to the King James because that's what I was used to using and that's what all my verses were memorized in. And it's easy to follow. It's easy to read. It's, uh, and like I said, I used it for a long time, so I'm not going to go real harsh on it. There's a, mostly it's a good translation. The New King James is mostly a decent translation, but where, they, where they've made some changes, they've made some big changes that change the entire meaning of the verse. And when I get to those, it's like, I have trouble with this. This is a... And that's part of working out your salvation and learning to study and listening to the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that I have said uh, when I was a teenager, before I knew how to do a lot of the study I now know how to do, I would come across somebody saying something or coming across something and go, God, I need to understand this. And the Holy Spirit would tell me what, the word, you know, what it meant. Could I prove it? Absolutely not. It was the Holy Spirit just said, this is what it means. The one thing I learned when I started learning how to study the Bible and getting into the Greek and Hebrew the Holy Spirit knew exactly what he was talking about and it was correct. Now I could prove it because I'd learned the Greek and the Hebrew and how to use those tools. Now all of a sudden it's like, okay, yes, the Holy Spirit is our ultimate teacher. I have a class that I have taught called How to Study the Bible. In the very first session I say, out of all the different things we're going to learn, the most important tool for studying the Bible is number one, prayer. But number two, the Holy Spirit revealing the answers to you. The Holy Spirit is the one that's going to give you your answers and, he, and no matter how much you know or don't know about how to study the Bible, if you just listen to him, he's the one that wrote the book, he's the one that knows what it's about and he will interpret it. And he does a very good job if you will just listen to him of interpreting what the scriptures say. So prayer, we pray when we read the Bible, we pray when we're studying and we listen to the Holy Spirit lead us as we go through it. Now, can you improve it by learning the tools and all that and learning how to study? Absolutely. One of the great ways to study is doing an inductive study, asking the questions, who, what, why, where, and, and, and all those questions. Who was it written to? Why, why was he, you know, when was it written to? You know, all these different things. And you start looking in and tearing it apart as you would any other thing you're studying. And that's a good way to study. Uh, it has its drawbacks, like all, all studies. Word studies are a great way to study because you get to see God's thought all the way through the Bible. You want to find out about marriage, you read every verse on marriage. You want to find out about being a father, you read every verse on, on being a father and you, get to, and you get God's thoughts on it. Problems with that is that you, get out of, you take verses out of context. <laughs> Tell everybody, I want everybody to take what I say and study it and look it and make sure it's in context. Uh, one pastor I've heard on the radio says, he says, read, read 20 verses before and 20 verses after at least. And that's just barely enough to really get context. I would go at least a full chapter and full chapter before and full chapter after. And even that is not necessarily in context because a book has context.
And so a book itself has context, which is why I go verse by verse through the Bible so that we can stay in context within the book that we're reading, hopefully. 20 is a good number because it usually takes you back far enough to actually get the context. But even having said that, every book has a context that needs to be followed. There's a case, especially like the book of Romans. You don't just jump in the middle of the book of Romans and try to follow Paul's argument because he's a good lawyer and a good, good arguer. He's, he's progressively built an argument. We, but even in, having said that a book has context because this is one book as far as God's concerned, the whole book has context from the very beginning where Jesus is barely shown to the very end where he's the, the one and only in, the, in Revelation. All of the Bible has context that relates to Jesus. So we need to be able to understand there's context and then there's context and then there's context. And this is why I say when, I, when people will quote uh, Hebrews, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed. And then they apply it to physical healing. Well, yes, it kind of applies to physical healing, but in context, it's all about spiritual healing. Because he says, you're diseased, you're, the sin is your disease, your body is dying because of the disease. And, and then he goes, by your stripes, you, you are healed. So it's very much talking about spiritual activity and spiritual healing. And if we take it out of context, then we get it used all incorrectly. And we get this whole idea of everybody should be healed all the time because by his stripes, we are healed. And if you take it out of context and use it in that aspect, then if you're sick, then you're, something's wrong with you because you're supposed to be healed. And that's not what it says in context. And so we want to be very careful. Context is so important when we're studying scripture. Well, it's, it's important no matter what you're studying, but for us being on a Christian basis, it's important when we study scripture. It has to be in context. Now, that doesn't mean we can take a verse and, and use it to show other, you know, as to, for the application. But we need to keep aware that the application is not necessarily the way it's supposed to be used. Yeah. By his stripes, we are healed. Yes, I will say we should have physical healing. And God heals often, but not always. But he will heal spiritually, always those who come to him. Always will heal spiritually. And so we want to be very careful that we're staying in the context of it. And this is one of the things that's hard sometimes in the newer, newer versions because they, they do something like we just read where it's, where it doesn't make any sense, especially when it's taken in context. It kind of sticks out, and, and I, that was the thing that drove me away from the NIV, is there would be these really weird statements that didn't make any sense, and then I would de delve into them and find out that they mistranslated it, but it stood out to me because the truth does not, the truth, anything that's a lie stands out when you're in, in amongst truth. And the Holy Spirit will reveal those places where it's not good. And... This is why I'm saying, and I don't criticize any of these translators. Don't get me wrong. I don't criticize any of them because I speak German or used to speak German back when I was studying it. I can still to a degree. But I know how difficult it is to try to translate between German and English because you have to make certain decisions. You have to decide what exactly is this word trying to say when it has two or three definitions and you're trying to figure out the best words to use. So I don't, I don't criticize any of these translators. I don't think they're trying to do anything on purpose to destroy the integrity of God's word. I don't think they're trying to do anything to, on purpose to destroy people's you know, doctrine and theology. It's just things that happened. 
Now, some of them I'm not so sure about. The more liberal ones I'm not so sure about, but I'm still not going to criticize them because I don't know their motives. I don't know what their intent was. All I know is it's hard to translate. And, you've got, and there's different rules for translation. There you translate word for word or thought by thought. And both people will argue very strong that they're the right way to do it. This is why we have the King James and the NASB. And especially in English because it's a really weird language in the first place. And then you start dealing with idioms that don't mean what it says. And that's one where we get when Jesus said, forgive 70 times 7. Well, if you take that literally, that means, okay, at 490 times, you've sinned 490 times, I'd stop forgiving you. Well, that's not what the idiom meant in, in, in Greek. It means you forgive so many times that you don't count it. He could have just said, no, you just, you never stop forgiving. And that's basically what he said by 70 times 7, but that's not how it's read when you read it literally. And yeah, it's supposed to be an infinite. You know, you're, you're not even supposed to count because basically saying, you know, if you're trying to count 490 times, you're, you're, you've got a real problem in the first place. But he's saying 490 times, you know, you're not going to count that many times. You know, you're going to lose count somewhere along the line. When we look at these things, and this one example of yours is one that you, you just have to decide, you know, as you see these things, when does it get to be where you don't want to deal with that particular translation? And that's an individual decision. And it may never happen. For me, it happened because I just got tired of, of dealing with them. But I was dealing at a much deeper depth of the, with the original languages. And I'm going, OK, I don't, I don't want to deal with it anymore. But you know, it's just like I say, we want to be careful. The Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. And that's the most important part of all of this, no matter what. The only real way to do it would be to learn Greek and Hebrew and go to the original, <laughs> the original languages. And most of us aren't going to be that disciplined to, to, to do that. So. And even then, you've got, are we using the right, there's different, different versions of the Greek and the, and the Hebrew. So it's, uh, which is part of what the problem is in these days. They're going, they're quoting the older, the older, more reliable. Well, I don't know sometimes whether they're quoting the more reliable or not. They may have found something older, but. All right, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come to study. We thank you for your word and your, your love for us. We ask that you guide and give us understanding of what we want us to do. Help us to learn to study better, to, to give the message better, and just to share you with others. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.